there's an irony. In our day, when someone wants to change everything that's wrong with the world, they run for president. In the Book of Mormon, Alma, hoping to pull down the pride and craftiness and contentions among his people, saw no way to reclaim them except to give up his office. Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast on the Book of Mormon. As many of you already know, we released a wonderful new ebook this past week called 11 Things You Probably Didn't Know About the Book of Mormon. This book, priced at only $6.99, will answer things such as, what do we know about Nephi's sisters? Do the names in the Book of Mormon have any significance? Does the great visitation of Christ to the Nephites at Ancient Bountiful have any resemblance to our modern times, including what is happening at Adam on Diamond? In what language was the plates of brass written? You might be surprised. And much, much more. This is the beginning of a little series that I've been working on for a long time that I'm calling the 11 Things series. I found from nearly 20 years of teaching adult and young adult institute classes that many miss the hidden gems in the scriptures. They miss the details and many of the aha moments that are densely packed into Holy Writ. You'll love this book. It's a truly fun read. And Scott, you've kept this one under 100 pages so that it can be studied and read easily, and it's full of wonderful discoveries that will delight the readers. I promise this will excite you to learn even more about the incomparable Book of Mormon. You will learn things you've just never known before. At only $6.99, it's a real bargain. To learn more and to order the ebook, please go to latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 11 things. That's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash 11 things and spell the word 11. This week we are studying Alma chapters 8 through 12 and the title is Jesus Christ will come to redeem his people. Alma hoped to change and reclaim his people by bearing down in pure testimony against them. Do you want to change things? Change hearts. President Ezra Taft Benson said it this way, The Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. The world would take people out of the slums. Christ takes the slums out of the people, and then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature. So Alma had it right, and it was right not just for his time, but for all time. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland adds, In times like ours, we all need what Mormon called the virtue of the Word of God, because, he said, it had a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Elder Holland continues, When crises come in our lives, and they will, the philosophies of men interlaced with a few scriptures and poems just won't do. Are we really nurturing our youth and our new members in a way that will sustain them when the stresses of life appear? Or are we giving them a kind of theological Twinkie, spiritually empty calories? President John Taylor once called such teaching fried froth, the kind of thing you could eat all day and yet finish feeling totally unsatisfied. During a severe winter several years ago, President Boyd K. Packer noted that a goodly number of deer had died of starvation while their stomachs were full of hay. In an honest effort to assist, 
agencies had supplied the superficial when the substantial was what had been needed. Regrettably, they had fed the deer, but they had not nourished them. Now, Alma had success in changing hearts in Zarahemla, Gideon, and Malak, but then he came to Ammonihah, a people who were after the order of Nehor and who believed that all men would be saved without a Redeemer. In other words, do whatever you want in this life. We learned that Satan had gotten great hold upon their hearts, and in their so-called tolerance of behavior had become a wicked people. You can see it in the terrible way they taunt Alma. They tell Alma that they were not of his church and did not believe such foolishness. There's that superior word again, as if believers are small-minded and stupid simpletons. What's more, they taunt him that since he had delivered at the judgment seat, thou hast no power over us. President Spencer W. Kimball said, Prophets have a way of jarring the carnal mind. And we might say that is why they are so often criticized. Yet, President Kimball continues, Those prophets I have known are the most loving of men. It is because of their love and integrity that they cannot modify the Lord's message merely to make people feel comfortable. They are too kind to be so cruel. I am so grateful that prophets do not crave popularity. Of course, Alma was experiencing anything but popularity in Ammonihah. The hatred, violence, and criticism of him was intense. Scholar Duane Boyce writing of the prophets, said, A Yiddish proverb comments on the stubborn recalcitrance of humankind. If God lived on earth, people would break his windows. Because it is our general tendency to reject God's counsels and doings, our decision to accept or reject them ought not to be determined by a majority vote. Prophetic pronouncements are no more likely to be crowd-pleasers in the 21st century than they were in the first. There is a vast difference that exists between our perspectives and those of God. God perceives not only every thought and intent of every person's heart, but also foresees the eternal consequences of every person's choices. And not only the consequences of such choices for themselves, but also for all others who are affected by them. He is also a being of perfect holiness. He has no moral flaws, no selfish motivations. He wants only what is right and pure, and His love for us is perfect and unending. Not incidentally, His divine purpose is to help each of us become as He is. It's hard to imagine how mortals could be less like God in these respects. Our natural condition limits our perspectives, subjects us to a constant battle with our selfish impulses, taints our love, and bends our purposes toward destructive ends. We are perfect at nothing. Duane Boyce continues, Because of these vast differences, it seems reasonable to expect God to behave and think differently about various matters than we do, and His ways will routinely make little sense to us. All this helps us see why we cannot suppose that the test of authenticity for a prophetic teaching is whether or not it makes sense. Scripture and the history of the church are replete with lessons teaching that we should expect to hear things from prophets that seem utter foolishness. 
Such things naturally invite both ridicule and offense from those who reject the things of God. None of this should surprise us. Nor should it be a surprise when prophetic announcements make the saints' lives harder. When Moses approached Pharaoh, the short-term result was a steep decline in the quality of life for the children of Israel. Pharaoh punished them by making their hard labors even more demanding. Similarly, life became more difficult for Joseph Smith once he began to share his first vision, and for all the saints thereafter. Now, Alma had worked hard at Ammonihah, only to be mocked and disdained. The scriptures describe Alma's missionary labors this way, wrestling with God in mighty prayer. And we know from what he says later that there had been much fasting. It reminds us that missionary work isn't usually easy. How many doors do you have slammed in your face, or how many people do you approach before someone shows any interest? Many good missionaries go their entire mission without a single convert. Appointments are dropped. Suddenly, phone calls are not returned. Our missionary efforts require sustained patience and persistence. For Alma's efforts, the people reviled him and spit upon him and caused that he should be cast out of their city. I often think these traumatic scenes in scriptures are understated. What details are left out since we don't see the violence directed at Alma or the many rallied against him with a mob mentality as they throw him from their city, probably even roughing him up in the process? What we do see is Alma's response as he is journeying away, quote, weighed down with sorrow, wading through much tribulation and anguish of soul. What is surprising is that this anguish is not about the way he has been brutally treated, but because of their wickedness and what will come to them because they won't repent. Elder Holland said, With admiration and encouragement for everyone who will need to remain steadfast in these latter days, I say to all, and especially the youth of the church, that if you haven't already, you will one day find yourself called upon to defend your faith, or perhaps even endure some personal abuse simply because you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To those, you will, in your own humble way, step into a circle of very distinguished women and men who have, as the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob said, viewed Christ's death and suffered his cross and borne the shame of the world. What happens next almost takes one's breath away because of Alma's unwavering devotion. An angel appears to him and says, Lift up thy head and rejoice, for thou hast great cause to rejoice, for thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which thou receivest thy first message from him. Behold, I am he that delivered it unto you. This must have been quite a meeting. One amazing point and one remarkable question come from this. First, in the midst of suffering, if you have been faithful, you have reason to rejoice. You have not been knocked from your testimony and hardship. And second, do we have a glimpse into the economy and stewardships of the next life when we understand that this angel who came to the sinful Alma the Younger is the same who came to deliver a new message to him now? Has this angel a particular stewardship for Alma? Is that the case for us? That's an idea that intrigues. The angel commands him to return to the city with a really difficult message. 
except they repent, the Lord God will destroy them. And this is the moment that astonishes me. Once Alma had received this message, he returned speedily to the land of Ammonihah. Now, if I were Alma, I might have asked if I could think about it for a few days while I processed my pain and healed up a bit. Or I might suggest that some other missionary might have better luck since my way of saying things certainly hadn't worked before. He might have said, I'm just not that popular and I'm an aha. Or he might have thought, can we just pad that message a little bit instead of saying they're going to be destroyed? Maybe they're going to have a lot of struggles. Or you won't like the outcome. Exactly. (laughs) No, Alma returns speedily. And these are two words I have let play in my mind for many years. They are up there with Peter leaving his nets straightway when Jesus called him to be a fisher of men. Why didn't Peter say, let me just get this load of fish in and make sure there's plenty of food at home, and then can I meet you tomorrow? This kind of firmness and steadfastness to return speedily or leave your net straightway really does open your eyes to new heights of human character. I am not talking alone here of the firmness and steadfastness of behavior, but the steadfastness of heart, might, mind, and strength, so that life does not dim our light so that our souls are not knocked or distracted from our singleness to seek, know, and serve the Lord. Grace under pressure, an eye single to the glory of God, a heart that is unwavering under the squeeze, firm and steadfast no matter what, what spiritual radiance there is in not waiting for some other time or some other place or some other circumstance to cast ourselves wholeheartedly to God. Life is what happens to us while we are distracted or self-absorbed with our burdens. If we wait to love others until our own needs are not crying at us, we will never serve them. If we wait to love God until we are perfectly content that He has answered every request, we will never love Him and we will never know Him. Since Christ is our exemplar, two moments from his life touch me deeply with their spiritual radiance in the same way. Clearly, Christ's disciples learn how to stay radiantly steady when life would throw them off course, and they learn it from him. Early in his ministry, Jesus had gone to the wilderness for 40 days to fast and be with his Father, as we know. After, he was hungered, famished, and dehydrated— Like us, he had a mortal body, subject to every discomfort, and he had been in the blazing heat and relentless sun at the Judean wilderness. Then, at what certainly could have been a vulnerable point, Satan came to tempt him. Temptation is harrowing and difficult for us, but we do not know the increasing pressure, the grueling psychological depths of temptation that Satan exerted upon the Lord who resisted it so magnificently. At any rate, between the fasting and the adversary's fiery darts, Jesus had been pounded both physically and spiritually to an extent we don't experience when the scripture says, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. That spiritual triumph could alone impress us. But Joseph Smith tells us something more in the JST. And now Jesus knew that John was cast into prison, and he sent angels, and behold, they came and ministered unto him. 
in that hour of vulnerability and thirst, when he had been worn and weary, stretched thin, he thought not of his own misery, but of John's. John, who had been thrown in a dungeon, was the object of Christ's thoughts, and he sent angels to comfort him. That takes my breath away. Who is this Jesus Christ? And to what possibilities of light does his character point us? Here's another example. Jesus was stripped, crucified on a cross, probably along a public highway, as was the Roman custom, so that all could humiliate and disdain him. He was already bleeding from a beating and a crown of thorns. He was mocked with the sign that was supposed to be an accusation. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, it read, and the crowd reviled him. If thou be the King of the Jews, save thyself. A stab at his mission and his identity. When he said, I thirst, he was given vinegar. In that ghastly hour when his flesh was ripped, his lungs collapsing under the pressure, he felt again the full weight of the atonement that he had experienced in Gethsemane. It would seem enough just to endure, but no, again, Christ amazes us. Even in this intolerable anguish, he was concerned for the well-being and care of his mother. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. What is this spiritual magnificence? What capacities of divine character do we catch a glimpse of? When he is pounded, he responds still with this consistent outpouring of love for others and faith in his Father. This is grace under pressure, and though we will never know the intensity of his pain, we have our own small pressures, and therefore an invitation is extended to stand before them with grace. The scripture in James that we know well because of Joseph Smith is followed by a sentence we often overlook. James tells us that if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God. But, and here is a key, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Unfortunately, wavering is something most of us know well. You might even say it is the mortal affliction. Our spirituality ebbs and flows. The conditions aren't always ripe for the flourishing of our spirits, or so it seems. At one moment, we are filled with the Spirit. We see the grand horizon. We cheerfully promise God that we will give all we have and are to Him. Yet there is often a slow grinding down in our lives. What we feel in the morning has been pounded out of us by the afternoon. What we resolve on Sunday, we forget on Tuesday. The world is too much with us. We are weary. Sometimes our hope is dimmed. The thing we wanted very most is the thing we don't receive. The effort, which cost us much and at one time seemed to promise so much, ends in failure. The child of our hopes and dreams disappoints us or rejects our teachings. We can be true and hopeful when prayers are answered and the crops come in. But what about when we kneel in need and seem to hear only the echo of our own voice? Sometimes in our life we face trials, clearly identified and difficult. Death, sickness, financial reversal, the abuse of a family member. 
but often just as trying is the long, tedious wearing down of every day, the job that needs to be constantly redone, the relentless undoing of our dreams, all the things that work away at us may dim our intentions. We mean to be steady like a river, and instead we dry up under pressure like a river in Arabia. Many moments of our life we may just feel dead inside, dead like autumn leaves that blow randomly along a gutter. We cry out to the Lord, breathe life into me. We want to forge ahead and with an eye single to the glory of God. We want to be able to step outside of ourselves and truly see the needs of others. But the struggle is real. It is hard to operate with the grace we intend under the pressure of mortality. We find good reasons we couldn't be as true as we intended. I compare it to developing a habit like running. You'd like to exercise every day, but something comes up. Today it's too cold, or it is too hot, it is too dark, or you are busy. You have an ache. Your stomach hurts. Maybe tomorrow would be better. Excuses abound for stopping us from doing the things we really want to do. Christ again is our model. For though God never abandons us, when Christ was performing the mighty atonement, His Father did withdraw from Him, that the triumph might be His alone. And Christ cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then, feeling thus forsaken, he carried out his work, and with his last words on the cross, he said, Thy will is done. What manner of men ought we to be, even as I am? Let us make an affirmation this day to be unwavering. I know, God, that Thou art there for me, and I will be there for Thee. When I look around and don't find Thee in my world or in my sometimes harrowing life, Thou art still written in my heart. All that to me is found in that magnificent gesture when Alma speedily returns, instead of doing what might have been easy, drag your feet, complain, or hide. What does Alma find in Ammonihah? that the Lord had everything arranged for him. The great Alma is reduced to begging for food, and he was especially hungry because he had been fasting for many days. And who does he find? Amulek. An angel already told Amulek that a holy prophet of God was coming, and he should receive him. Amulek's being right there was not a coincidence, but a divine orchestration. We see many of these in our own lives. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once explained, None of us ever fully utilizes the people opportunities allocated to us within our circles of friendship. You and I may call these intersectings coincidence. This word is understandable for mortals to use, but coincidence is not an appropriate word to describe the workings of an omniscient God. He does not do things by coincidence, but by divine design. After a few days of rest, Alma and Amulek begin to preach, and it is clear why Alma would need a good companion. As Alma teaches, the people taunt him, Who art thou? Suppose ye that we should believe the testimony of one man? We will not believe thy words if thou shouldst prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day. For those who know the rest of the story of the Book of Mormon, this boast is ironic because Of course, that's exactly what happens to Ammonihah. 
for all its greatness and supposed superiority, it is destroyed in one day. Alma's warning to the people of Amnihah is important for all those who have had the light and then turned away from it. He begs them to repent and cites all the things the Lord has done for them. God particularly will not allow them to persecute and destroy his church now that they have made their exit. For he will not suffer you that ye shall live in your iniquities to destroy his people. I say unto you, Nay, he would rather suffer that the Lamanites might destroy all his people who were called the people of Nephi, if it were possible that they could fall into sins and transgressions, after having had so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. Yea, after having been such a highly favored people of the Lord, yea, after having been favored above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people, after having had all things made known unto them, according to their desires and their faith and prayers, of that which has been, and which is, and which is to come. If they have transgressed after so many blessings, it will be better for the Lamanites, who have not received such gifts, than for them. The Lamanites have sinned mostly in ignorance, and so their responsibility is different. The Lord is ever interested in His children not being destroyed, so, of course, He sends this second witness, Amulek, and we learn a lot about Him very quickly. He is a person of means and reputation in Ammonihah, much of it from His own labor. He is a descendant of that same Amminadi who interpreted the writing that was on the wall of the temple. Whoa, I don't know that story. It is intriguing to get the merest glimpse of a story that Mormon did not choose to include in the plates. He tells us often he can only record the hundredth part and this remarkable event Mormon left out. Now Amulek tells us he has been an important man for a purpose, which is to acknowledge that for all those trappings, I have never known much of the ways of the Lord and his mysteries and marvelous power, But behold, I mistake, for I have seen much of his mysteries and his marvelous power, yea, even in the preservation of the lives of this people. Nevertheless, I did harden my heart, for I was called many times, and I would not hear. Therefore, I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. I've always loved that verse. I was called, but I would not hear. I knew, yet I would not know. That describes an interesting human condition we call resistance. But why would we ever resist the Lord? Is it because we are afraid to be vulnerable before Him? Is it because we are afraid He will ask something of us that we don't want to give? Is it because we imagine we are self-sufficient? Or is it just because we want to live our lives in our own way without any interference? We cling to our resistance for many reasons, which in the end look very short-sighted. Amulek testifies that he has seen an angel who told him to watch for Alma to come. He testifies that his family has been blessed. He testifies that what Alma has told them is true, and this is enough to rile up the important people, the lawyers who are making a good living from the trouble they can create. They start now using their cunning devices that they might catch Alma and Amulek in their words. Destroy what you cannot bear to hear. That is the outlook of the people of Ammonihah. My goodness, that sounds familiar. It does. 
They want to deliver Alma and Amulek to prison or to be slain. At that moment, when the old Amulek might have backed down, now he stands up and whips the people to greater fury by telling them that it is only the prayers of the righteous that have spared them to this point. Amulet proclaims that the foundation of the destruction of this people is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. We learn, now the object of these lawyers was to get gain, and they got gain according to their employ. So, of course, they are rewarded for stirring up trouble. Therefore, they did stir up the people to riotings and all manner of disturbances and wickedness that they might have more employ. Now, the record makes what looks like an interesting aside as it describes in some detail the Nephite monetary system, but one reason for that, in this place where money matters so much, may be to clarify the nature of the bribe Zeezrom offers Amulek. It's extremely significant. It's a huge bribe. The most brilliant accuser of Alma and Amulek was Zeezrom, a man who was expert in the devices of the devil, that he might destroy that which was good. Zeezrom said unto him, Behold, here are six aunties of silver, and all these will I give thee if thou wilt deny the existence of a supreme being. An auntie was a substantial bribe, but he offers him six. We see a second time in these chapters that Amulek can perceive the thoughts of those who seek to snare him. To discern another's thoughts and pierce clear to their heart and mind is a spiritual gift that is clearly demonstrated here. How often we wish we had this gift. Amulek says to Zeezrom, Thou hast lied before God unto me. Thou saidst unto me, Behold, these six aunties which are of great worth, I will give unto thee, when thou hast it in thy heart, to retain them from me. And it was only thy desire that I should deny the true and living God, that thou mightest have cause to destroy me. Zeezrom continues to lie, split hairs, and change the meaning of words in the dialogue that follows, and Amulek is bold. He and Alma both preach what they call the plan of redemption. Laying it out so clearly, it reminds us why this Book of Mormon is irreplaceable to us. You just don't see such a clear explanation in any other scripture of the plan of salvation. They speak of it in terms of restoration. All shall have the bands of death loosed with the spirit and the body reuniting again in its perfect form. Now this restoration shall come to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, both the wicked and the righteous, and even there shall not so much as a hair of their heads be lost, but everything shall be restored to its perfect frame. Of course, that's in Alma chapter 11, verses 42 and 43. Of course, this is because Christ overcame physical death. But for the wicked, they will remain as though there had been no redemption made, except for loosing the bands of death. We shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now, and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. Hearing things laid out so clearly, even Zeezrom begins to tremble and rethink his words. He was convinced more and more of the power of God. Amulek had accomplished the unthinkable, actually silencing Zeezrom. Alma reminds him that he cannot lie to God because God knows all of our thoughts. Here another mystery is shared. 
You know how when people you love leave the church, you begin to see how they revise their own history? They claim they never felt the Spirit. That was just an emotional moment. They say they never had a testimony. They were just influenced by peer pressure. They really don't know things they used to know. Even if they could repeat the words of doctrine, the Spirit is no longer there to expand the mind and testify of meaning and truth. When they pull back in their spirit, they also pull back in their mind, and they no longer have spiritual access to the same realm of spiritual understanding. It just dissolved and blew away on the wind. Alma explains this to us. He that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word, until they know nothing concerning his mysteries, and then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. We don't want to harden our hearts so that the word no longer has a place in us. This doesn't happen all at once. Hardening our hearts can often be a gradual thing until one day we wake up and realize we are no longer where we were before. What is hardening our hearts? It is to be resistant, proud, rebellious, stiff-necked, and stubborn toward the Lord. As Elder Marvin J. Ashton said, why the heart? Because the heart is a synonym for one's entire makeup. We often use phrases about the heart to describe the total person. Thus, we describe people as being big-hearted or good-hearted or having a heart of gold. Or we speak of people with faint hearts, wise hearts, pure hearts, willing hearts, deceitful hearts, conniving hearts, courageous hearts, cold hearts, hearts of stone or selfish hearts. It's the Spirit of the Lord that softens the heart. That's all for today. We're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this has been Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. Thanks to Paul Cardall for the beautiful music that begins and ends this podcast and to Michaela Proctor Hutchins, who produces this show. Next week, we'll discuss Alma chapters 13 through 16, Enter into the Rest of the Lord. See you then.